When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my lovelies. Welcome to the first episode of Ladies Who London, which is without the lovely Emily. This is just Alex here. Um, I've yet to figure out what I'm going to do at the very start. Um, I've yet to figure out what I'm going to do at all, to be honest. Um, so welcome to the very first episode um, of Lady Who London's, I guess, at the moment. Um, I've been sort of having a bit of a think about what's what, what we're doing and how it's going to look. And I've got a few ideas and I've got a few guests lined up and a whole variety of lovely things that we're going to do. Um, but I've had a bit of a busy week. It's been a bit of a big week for one reason or another. Um, busy with work, busy with some personal things. So I just thought this week, let's just ease ourselves into the new reality without the lovely Emily by just having a chat, me and you together. Um, talking about one of the things that I've been meaning to talk about for some time. Now, as you know, Emily won custody of the Wheel of Destiny. I, I should have fought her on it, frankly. You know, it's both of our babies, but she needed it. I feel like she needed it. <laughs> so um, I've let her keep the Wheel of Destiny. And I'm just going to start looking at some things that I've had on my list for ages that haven't come up. Some of your recommendations or, or requests as well. And that's what we're going to do. It's going to remain the same in terms of a pretty informal podcast. Um, I've got some exciting things coming up, some people I've been chatting to about coming on and talking about certain things. And we're still going to keep looking at London and the bits, the people, places and events, isn't it? The people, places and events that have formed this amazing city of ours. Um, and have a look at some of those in the coming weeks. Um, so yeah, so this this week since Emily left, um, I haven't really spoken to her actually. I think we've, we're so used to kind of speaking once a week that we've got to get round to uh, actually putting a date in the diary for a little a little chat and a little catch up. I'm still not living in London. I'm still out in Essex at the moment, um, which is great for me right now. Um, I checked in on my house the other day. It's sort of going up. It's great. The walls of the of the extra bit are going up. Um, Still not yet done. We've still got a little while to go for that. But uh, yeah, it's all very exciting. And, you know, things are starting to heat up with, with the season. People are starting to come and inquire about tours this year, um, which, yeah, is is exciting. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, if you are thinking about coming to London this year and you want me to guide you, just hold off for a little bit. Um, I've got a couple of things I just need to sort out and then I'll come back to you Um with dates and things like that. I was being a bit cryptic and I realise that, but I it's not the only thing I can talk about just at the moment. I will let you know in due course. But if you still want to come to London and you still want to do a tour, give it a week or two and then get in touch with me and we can uh, we can sort all of that out. Um, so what are we going to do this week? Well, this week I just thought I was going to talk to you about a little spot that's been on my list for a while and I thought I just really wanted to chat about this. So I'm, we, we're going to do that. Um, I should have probably had somebody along to come and 
chat with me about it, but let's see how this works. We might hate it. It might be awful me just talking at you and you thinking, oh, I could really do with somebody else. It might work. Who knows? So let, let's give it a go. Um, and we will we'll work through things as we go. But today, what I thought we'd do is head to an area on the south bank of London, right around Borough Market, which is an area I know really, really well because I run a company. We do lots of food tours in that area. Um, and it's all an area that I love wandering around. There's so many little bits of curious history uh, in there. So it's really, really worth a look. And of course, Borough Market. Who doesn't love Borough Market? Who doesn't want to go to a gorgeous market in London and stuff their face with all manner of gorgeous hot food and chocolates and goodness knows what else? Um, But what I'm going to take you to today is an area that is a little bit less, well, less glamorous than Borough Market. And it's a particular place called Crossbones Graveyard. Now, of course, you're, you you already realise that this is not the, the kind of cheerier side of the history that we sometimes deal with. But actually, we're going back to my kind of uh, favourite stomping ground of the sort of slightly sexier history. Although it's not really sexy, but it is sex. Uh, sex sells, right? So I'm just I'm going in big on the first week with that, Emily. We're gonna we're gonna make uh, we're gonna see if you uh, you hook into this one. Um, but we're talking about Crossbones Graveyard and the uh, the Bishops of Winchester. Now you might be thinking Winchester, that's not in London, and no, it's not. Winchester is a city for those who don't know England particularly well. It's a city about mm, an hour and a half two hours maybe west of London it's actually kind of my home city as close as I've got to a home city I grew up as a military kid so we moved around a lot but Winchester's where my parents or near where they settled Um, so that's kind of where I've known for a a good length of time and it is you know it's got nothing to do with London really uh, on the surface of it but I want to take you back well firstly let's let's kind of go back to an area that we know or uh, an era I should say that we know quite well which is Victorian times and we've talked a lot on this podcast about Victorian era about slum housing about poverty all of that kind of thing in particular a couple of weeks ago where we talked about uh, the east end of London but we're going to an area uh, known as well now it's known as Red Cross Way back in the day it was Red Cross Street and it was part of this another rookery or or essentially slum which was known as the Mint and it was a quite notorious one I mean I don't know if there were any unnotorious slums because let's face it a slum is all about people living in poverty and so you're not going to have exactly you know the great and the good living in slums you are going to get crime and all the sort of things that come with abjectly poor people so when they they always refer to rookeries and slums as notorious and I'm like yeah show me one that wasn't but anyway and it was this pretty hideous place to live cholera the the, all the kind of things that you're, you're used to hearing about and in the um in the late 1880s, there was a survey done on the living conditions in that area, and it found that about 12,000 people were in the area, and 800 of them were living in houses or dwellings of some description, which was only one room. Uh, and sometimes there'd be between six to ten people living in just one room. So you can tell that this area is pretty, um, you know, it's pretty poor. We, we, we've, we've seen this before, so we're not going to um, spend too much time talking about the intricacies of all of that. But the thing that is particular about this street is there is a graveyard on this street and it actually pops up in um, a survey of London uh, in 1598 by a guy called John Stowe. Now, John Stowe 
pops up quite a lot. If you're ever looking at maps of London, and there's a few places we can go to kind of overlay maps of different eras on top. And one of the ones that pops up quite a lot is the one of John Stowe. He did this survey of London which gave us some really quite detailed maps for the time, particularly um, about certain areas, not all the areas that we know today, because of course a lot of London, as we know it today, wasn't part of uh, London that you would know today, um, but a lot of the, the central areas. And he created this map in this area and mentioned something which he, he termed a single women's churchyard. Now, already this is probably ringing some bells going, hmm, single women, why would he mention that? That's a bit weird. And he talks in his survey of ancient men of good credit talking about a burial ground. It's always about men of good credit, isn't it? Um, and that, that it's far away from the parish church and that these single women are put into this single women's churchyard. Now, we've spoken a lot in the past about how single women in history have often um, either been a bit sort of outcast or have maybe been part of a profession that is not quite as accepted as others and this is exactly what we're talking about these are women who worked in stews or brothels so we're talking about sex workers here um, who were condemned to be buried in uh, unconsecrated ground so a, a graveyard that doesn't belong to a church it means that they would have been buried without a christian burial and the real curiosity about this is that these women um okay you might sort of think right well you know in the sex industries of course they're outcast of course they're going to be an unconsecrated ground however for over 500 years their profession was licensed and regulated by the church and in particular the bishops of winchester so winchester being quite a way away um what what is this all related to well the Bishops of Winchester were incredibly rich. Uh, the church, of course, held a lot of money, a lot of sway, a lot of power. And essentially, the bishops of Winchester owned an awful lot of land in the Southwark area, on the south bank of uh, the River Thames. And they needed, of course, uh, a place to live when they came up to London uh, to look, you know, look out for all of that and also to just to be close to the royals and the court and all of that so between the 12th and the 17th century the bishop of winchester was you could kind of term it that he was a bit of a feudal lord of the manor and this is quite an intriguing way because he almost acted slightly separately to the rest of london the rest of the country in fact that the king almost gave him his blessing and went kind of do whatever you want so his palace which was enormous and it was known simply as, as Westminster sorry Winchester Palace stood sort of between where the church was or the, the parish church which is now Southwark Cathedral and the Clink Prison so this is a, a little stretch of maybe if you were to walk it between the two two minutes walk it's really not far um Southwark Cathedral beautiful cathedral if you've not visited it I highly recommend it uh, right on the corner of Borough Market and then the road called now called Pickford's Wharf goes uh, behind the buildings that, that border onto the river and you can still see the remnants or the ruins of Winchester Palace particularly um, the rose window and one of the walls of what you would have been this huge great hall now the, the south of London didn't really, well, the south, south of the river, I should say, didn't really class as London uh, in that period of time. Think back, and this is where I love that London, sort of all the, the different bits of the history all come together. When the Romans came to London, they created the first river crossing, more or less where London Bridge is today. 
and created well Londonian, which we now know as the city of London on the north side of the river. The city of London, bless them, you know, you crack on 2000 years of history over there. But they are also what I like to term a bit of a fun sponge. Uh, they didn't they didn't like all the fun things, theatres, brothels, gaming, all of that kind of stuff. And they said, right, that can't happen in the city of London. So it goes out of London. It goes to the south side of the river where it was kind of a bit of a no man's land. It was a little bit lawless. Anything that really shouldn't be happening, as far as they were concerned, it happened on the South Bank. So this area that was owned by the bishops of Winchester wasn't really London at the very start anyway. So this huge palace was built and it, it one of it well it was the whole palace itself was one of the largest and the most important buildings in all of medieval London the bit that you can see today is part of the great hall and that is just a tiny bit of what the entire palace would have been it would have been enormous um the great hall as well what is there is only a section of it it would have been one of the largest buildings in London stretching 80 feet long by about 30 to 40 feet wide um, and not only that it's got some good pedigree behind it as guides when we qualify we spend two years going to random places and learning very nerdy things about people that I think oh I'm never going to mention that person again and I'm about to mention one of them so uh, if you are a Blue Match guide and you listen to this get excited because we are talking Henry Yeavily or exciting. If you've not heard of him, that's fine. I learned about him many years ago. This is the, literally the first time I've mentioned him. But basically, he's a, he's a master mason and he, he builds bits of the Tower of London, including the Bloody Tower, one of the most famous bits, and also bits of Westminster Abbey and Canterbury Cathedral in particular. So his names pop up there occasionally, but I, I don't really mention him. But anyway, it just gives you a sense of the pedigree that's gone into the building of this uh, huge great hall and what it would have been like. Um, it stood along what would have been then the, the south bank of the river. We've um, reclaimed bits of the river now, um, so it's not quite as wide. Uh, and there's a huge rose window, and that does still exist. There's no glass in it, obviously, uh, but the filigree, the, the sort of stonework um, of where the glass would have been is still there. And you can see they have a, actually it's a really good plaque in front of it that shows you how it would have been the upper hall with a vaulted cellar below which was used to store wine and things like that and this was an absolutely enormous and very lavish um great hall now so much so that even though it doesn't belong to the royal family belongs to these bishops it is used for royal entertaining and there's a variety of royals not just british royals but uh, from other countries as well who used it uh, for a variety of different reasons the real headline act though is james the first of scotland he had his wedding feast there in 1424 so this place is is incredibly important of course the bishops are going to want to entertain the royals they are going to want to keep them sweet all of that the site then was much much bigger than what we see now and there were several courtyards a whole smattering of buildings there was a prison a brew house there was a butchery there were even passages that led off to several little um, private wharves wooden wharves that you could get onto boats and things really easily so you've got all of the trappings of finery and not just that it was uh, there was it was an entertainment hub so these bishops are coming up to london and they're having a whale of a time there was a tennis court a bowling alley there were pleasure gardens these guys you know they're, they're having a great time when they're coming up here um it all sort of falls apart in the late 1600s. Um, the bishop 
uh, at the time died at Westminster uh, Winchester Palace. I keep saying Westminster. It's not Winchester Palace. And then it sort of they, it kind of gets a bit forgotten. It serves as a bit of a prison. Then it's sold off to this guy who kind of chunks the whole thing down into warehouses and tenement housing. Then there's a big old fire, which is you know classic London fire everywhere um, in 1814 and then it's sort of forgotten about and it wasn't really until the 1980s that it was well I say restored not really restored but uh, made into something to actually go and look at and you know uncovered and all that thing so that gives you a bit of a sense of how big it was and how important these these bishops were and they essentially ruled this quite impressive area of Southwark as almost their own little feudal system or, or kind of kingdom. As I mentioned, Southwark is outside of the city of London. So not only is it a place where the city of London, capital C, goes, right, you can have all of the, the stuff that we don't think is good, but also you're going to have thieves, pickpockets, you're going to have crime, all sorts of stuff. And this is where we had lots and lots of stews and brothels. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird. The Henry II, the king at the time, he was quite happy for the bishops, in fact, the, well, the first bishop, who was um, a guy called Henry of Blois. And Henry of Blois is the brother of King Stephen, who, did you know we had a King Stephen? We did, way back. Um, and he basically says to him, you know what, you can kind of, yeah, have the land and I'm happy for you to build your palace pretty much do whatever you want in there you can put whatever rules in place that you want it's a little bit lawless so just do what you need to do keep it kind of tidy do whatever you want and in amongst this he gave him the power to license prostitutes and brothels so this is not really what you're expecting from the church the church who are all very moral and they're coming in with their you know obviously we know that the church had a lot of power a lot of money in the past but they were actively involved in the sex industry in London. What then happened is these women who were working in the area were known as the bishops of Winchester, sorry, the Bishop of Winchester's geese. And remember this, because this is going to come back to us. The Winchester geese become incredibly famous. Um, in fact, William Shakespeare, um, his Globe Theatre is, if you keep walking maybe 10 minutes or so, um, it, you get to the site of where the, the original Globe uh, used to be, just down river a little bit from the palace. And he references uh, Winchester Geese, particularly in, in several of his plays. Um, one of the most famous times that he does that is in King Lear. So he is not only aware of them, but it's such a mainstay of the local community that he puts them in his plays. And you sort of think, well, in if, if the church and the bishops are so moral, then maybe they're just not quite so bothered back in the day. This area of Southwark and Bankside has, has had a history of, of prostitution and sex work long, long, long before the bishops uh, come in. And in fact, there's, there's some evidence there may have been brothels at the time of the Romans uh, in London, or rather in that area of, of uh, Londinium. And the bishops didn't just license them uh, the, the women and the and the brothels, but they also uh, profited quite heavily from them. They profited, they would let out the buildings that they had on their sites, on their ground to be used as brothels. They took income from the women themselves. It, they were almost kind of like pimps in a way. 
they also put in a, a code of conduct. Well, it was it was more than that. It was an ordinance. So essentially, uh, their version of a law. And they were called ordinances touching the government of the stew holders, so the brothel holders, in Southwark under the direction of the Bishop of Winchester. And this arrives a little bit later. This arrives in the 15th century, so the 1400s. And this lays out nearly 40 very particular rules and fines that are associated with them. Now, you might think, okay, well, these are going to be laws that either um, uh, sort of police the way that the women work or that are protecting the women from the men, their customers. And actually, it's a bit of both. It's a bit weird. I should say that globally, I say that there are more laws concerning the women than there are concerning their safety. However, there is a whole ton of really, really weird and wonderful laws in here. There are some pretty straightforward ones. For the male clients that one of the ordinances, they're not allowed to punch the women in the face. That's pretty good. I'm happy with that. And um, also the city of London on the north side, now they close their, their gates at night. Um, very famously, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but the uh, we've talked about pilgrimages down to Canterbury and the Canterbury Tales. In fact, the Canterbury Tales, they all start off from this very area, from um, houses and, and pubs that would have been literally minutes walk from where we're talking about because the gates close at night and open in the morning and if you were going on pilgrimage the gates wouldn't open early enough for you to be able to get out and get on your way to Canterbury. So one of the other ordinances is that if you are around in that area with one of these women uh, too late you are not allowed to go back across the river after nightfall. There may well have been some issues with that. We're not quite sure. And they would have to have stayed within one of the brothels or the stew houses if they were pretty much, you know, the last guy up that night. And maybe that was then more money that went to the women and ultimately the bishops. Who knows? For the women, there's some very particular ones. Number six on the list says the owners of a stew holder, so you know, of a brothel, could not lend a sex worker more than eight shillings and eight pence. So this was done to prevent a brothel owner having mm, too much kind of coercive control over one of the women. Number nine in the list says, uh, a sex worker who paid the rent of 14 pence must be allowed to come and go at will. The older of the stew must not interfere. So if you're paying your rent, then that is your business and you can kind of crack on with whatever. You don't have to answer to anyone. If you're not paying that, then, then you know, other things. Number 15 on the list, a fine of 40 shillings if a stew holder's wife is solicited at a stew. So she basically, if if she, if the wife of, of one of these brothel keepers decides that she's going to put herself up for a bit of, you know, whatever, then she gets, uh, or, or you as the brothel holder will also get uh, fined. They're, they are not allowed to, they get fined if they are um, seen to be enticing a man into the brothel by pulling on his coat or any other item of clothing. So you're not allowed to physically manhandle and go, you want a bit of this, don't you? And he's going, no. And you're like, yes, you do. In you come. So that, that's against uh, against the, the rules as well. You're not allowed to, well, we're going to use the word, we're not allowed to whore. If Parliament is sitting, hilarious, um, you're not allowed to wear an apron. Now, there's a bit of a debate about this, and we'll come back to clothing in a while, but possibly to do with kind of visible segregation. They want to know. We've talked about sumptuary laws in the past, about dressing, depending on what your status is. So if you're wearing an apron, it's going to signify that you've got a respectable job. You might be a washerwoman, uh, a woman in service, uh, you know, whatever it might be. You're not 
a prostitute and and they people need to be able to see walk down the street and see people and and know their status they know their class their status their possibly even what they do for a job and we'll come back to this a little bit later um you're not allowed to work if you're pregnant you're not allowed to work on a sunday because you know you can well you your, your money's going to the church but you definitely can't do this on a holy day so there's a whole variety of different um different laws here and also uh, particular, so a particular particular very serious uh, one was if you if the the sex worker struck up a relationship with their well it's termed a procurer basically what we would call a pimp now and for that you could get a fine but also you could suffer um being dunked on the cucking stool and possibly you could be imprisoned as well and a whole variety of things you could even be kicked out of the borough that you call home and where you work so there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of policing of the women um even though their work is going towards the church now clothing so as i mentioned we have discussed these sumptuary laws and how certain levels of society can wear fur or silk and this kind of thing one of the things that was imposed on the Winchester geese, and this was not just the Winchester geese, this was something that you, it's kind of a late medieval thing. Um, they were in this weird position where these women are reviled. They're in the same, they're actually sort of clumped together in the same group with lepers and heretics and people that were really outcasts in society. But they're also, their services are heavily used and they are almost deemed necessary. Um, you can talk about what I think we have talked about in the past, men, particularly in, in society of, of um, you know, having mistresses and things like that. And it would be much more preferable that, that a man would go to a sex worker than uh, sort of defiling a young maiden. And therefore, you know, if she was in society and, and she had to keep her maidenhood for marriage and all that sort of thing. So it, it's almost a necessity. And yet they are very much kind of pariahs. So the sumptuary law kicked in and something that you had to wear if you were a sex worker in this area and other areas as well, depending, um, you needed to be easily distinguishable and you had to wear a thing called a hood of ray, R-A-Y. And this was a striped cloth that was made into a hood that you had to wear. You were never allowed to wear any type of fur within city bounds as well. And if you were found to be wearing fur, you could be stripped of that. You could also then be stripped of your hood, which meant that you then had to save up to buy another one because you had to wear one. So it's it's amazing if you think about it. And I would love to see one day a film or a TV show where they are looking at this kind of era. And we see things like that in the background, just people you know, wearing these hoods or, or wearing certain different things in the sumptuary laws so that we can tell, if you know what you're looking at, who they are and, and what level of society they are. Um, however, now there's this is a bit of a curio here. It's not just, we know, you know, we know how much people like to tarnish women and, and particularly people involved in, uh, you know, industries relating to sex. Um, it wasn't just bona fide sex workers who had to wear this. It was, and I, I quote, any woman who was commonly reputed as such so basically, if they thought that you were a prostitute, they could force you to wear this hood, even if you weren't. If they got their knickers in a twist and went, you're a whore, that was it. Game over, hood on. So it's a really, you know, it's quite a a, a big thing to expect of women and just anybody in the area, really. Um, there were tactics also to, to make sure that they kept 
women in their place. So humiliation was a great tactic. This is part of this wearing of the hood, but also they could shave your head if you really stepped out of line. Um, and in 1318, it was also ordered that no prostitutes were to be at court. And if they were found at court for a second time, they would be branded on the forehead. So essentially, you're disfiguring somebody for their position in life, which is really quite unbelievable. But there we go. Um, so the bishops of Winchester really profit from all of this. They profit from, you know, what I mean, in terms of the the women in the area, that hood is going to denote you. So if you're if someone's looking for a sex worker, then you are very obviously part of that. And therefore, in a way, it's a way of the bishops of Winchester being able to kind of advertise their their flock, their Winchester geese. So they're going to profit from the rents of the buildings. They're going to profit from um, any of the fines that are imposed to the women. And they're also going to profit from the income from the women as well. So, you know, these Winchester geese, they're quite... They're quite famous, but they're also quite useful to these bishops. It was also known that if you got a dose of, of the clap um, or any other uh, venereal disease, it was it was referred to as being bitten by a Winchester goose or also, and this is going to make you think twice, having goosebumps. So <laughs> this is quite, uh, you know, this is quite a thing. And it, 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 it goes into common parlance and anybody who, yeah, gets a dose of the clap, they've been bitten by a Winchester goose and people know what that means. There was a particular, a variety of brothels, but a particularly notorious one called the Cardinal's Cap. Now, if anyone knows London and knows this area of London in particular, you will know right by the Tate Modern, there's a little, a uh, little row of very gorgeous houses between the Tate and the Globe, and right there, there is a little street called Cardinal's Cap Alley, and this refers to this brothel that was in the area. It takes its name from the owner of the brothel. So he didn't just rent them out. He owned a brothel. A guy called Cardinal Beaufort, who was one of the bishops of Winchester at one particular time. And he would tootle around the area uh, wearing his red cardinal's hat, which is quite a, you know, quite a sight. And uh, that was the name or the nickname rather that the brothel took on that he um, owned and obviously got a lot of income from. Now, you would think that the... If these people are so important to you, um, that you would look after them. And they did, in a way, during their life. Well, I say looked after them. The, these laws that I mentioned came in. However, oh, actually, I've forgotten to tell you something before we get to that bit. Um, the one thing that I find very interesting is often, where did this money go? One of the places that was created from the money that was taken by these bishops was a college in Dulwich and in fact it's called Dulwich College it's a very good school its founder was a guy called Edward Allen uh, spelt Alain A-L-L-E-Y-N and he kept a brothel on on the South Bank um, he married the daughter of John Dunn who was the Dean of St Paul's and she um, also came with a couple of brothels as well so it's all it, you know, it's all linked in with the church. And this money that went from that went on to, well, because Edward Allen founded the Dulwich College. So his money from these brothels went on to found that college, which is just so interesting. And I always love it when, you know, I, I talk on my Harlots tour about how um, the area of Marylebone is built very much off the backs of the sex industry in the 1700s. It's so interesting that these things happen and, and you know, they're kind of swept under the rug in modern days. Um, a lot of these brothels close in the 1500s, in about 1540s, when Henry VIII bans them. Um, and this is when the, the whole area starts to not be quite as lucrative for the bishops of Winchester. And then I mentioned in the 1600s, 
the last bishop uh, to well to, to use the place died there and then after that they they weren't that bothered uh, funnily enough uh, you know when the when the money stopped coming in so as I mentioned you would expect that the uh, the people who, who want you know profited from all of this would also look after the women in death and give them a full Christian burial right no of course not they're only interested in them when they are alive so this is where we come back to this crossbones graveyard this unconsecrated graveyard that i mentioned at the start of the podcast there are records uh law records for the bishop of winchester and they do document some burials happening in that area at that time and in the margin of who is being buried they're putting single woman or sometimes single wench and there's no other occupation that's put down there now we we know very well that a single woman referred to a sex worker. It's We know that. So this is a pauper's graveyard for the outcast dead, of which a greatly number are these women, the Winchester geese. In this little graveyard, there are estimated to be about 15,000 people buried. And because pauper's graveyards were never as good as those for rich people, we've mentioned on a previous podcast about body snatching and and how that used to happen and why and where. Well, this was a regular site for body snatching um, in Red Cross Street because the paupers are buried in shallow graves. They're often stacked, so they're a lot higher to the surface. They're a lot easier for body snatchers to get. So, you know, the, the ignominy does not end in death. It carries on afterwards. Um, it gets to a really, really bad stage. In 1849, there's a lady called Marianne Gwilt who lives on Union Street, which is just around the corner. And she is so concerned with the number of bodies that are lying. Well, she, she describes it as lying in their shells. So I assume, you know, in coffins, um, maybe open. And she just, she, it's a health crisis. And so she goes to the, the Board of Health and she says, this has got to stop. Um, and eventually, in 1853, they actually closed the burial ground completely. It was described as being completely overcharged with dead. Um, so they stopped doing that. And then it sold as a building site, believe it or not. What are you going to do with the troublesome plot? Ah, build something on it. Um, A chap comes into the fray called Lord Brabazon. And he decides he's going to campaign to save it as an open space and not desecrate it, not create anything else on top of it, but keep it as a pauper's graveyard and and sort of give it a little bit more respect than it had um, otherwise uh, encountered. The sale didn't go through. It was... um, Well, actually, I think it did go through, but it was then declared null and void in 1884, and it was created under the Disused Burial Grounds Act. So this is where we kind of, you know, we start to go, okay, well, they're they're kind of keeping it as a burial ground or a a disused one, and and this is good. Now, we we fast forward a little bit to the 1990s, and in the 1990, well, between 1991 and 1998, the Jubilee Line is being built, and there is an electricity substation being built in this very area. Me- the Museum of London, uh, who is an archaeological, um, well, museum with an archaeological department. So whenever anything is found, we're talking Roman ruins, when plague pits are discovered, all of this kind of thing. Uh, the Museum of London, or MOLA, as they're known, Museum of London Archaeology, uh, comes in and does some excavation, and they remove about 148 skeletons, which is described as less than 1% of the total number of burials made here. 
Some are exhibited at the Museum of London and there's a London Bodies exhibition. And one of the skulls is tested and it's a young woman's skull with a variety of lesions on it. And it's tested as positive for syphilis. Uh, they do some other tests and they realise that the woman was four inches, four feet, seven, four inches. That's, that would be ridiculous. Four feet, seven inches tall. She was somewhere between 16 and 19 and the disease was very well advanced. So this, I think, tells you everything that you need to know um, about the women in this area. Um, how they, you know, she's not even 20 and she's died probably from syphilis. So it, it's not going to be a great, a great life around here. And then 1996 is when something really quite unusual happens. There's an author called John Constable, and I should say not the painter John Constable, um, who has absolutely no link to Crossbones Graveyard or the Winchester Geese or anything of that nature. And randomly he has a dream and there is a goose, a medieval goose that comes to him and raises the spirit of what was termed a medieval whore. And this woman takes him on a sort of a little to a little tour really uh muscling in on the blue badge work clearly um <laughs> takes him on a tour around the area to a variety of different sites that are related to the winchester geese and it ends at this concrete scruffy area under development for this jubilee line extension and he has absolutely no idea what this is um so he goes on a little rummage and a little a little you know bit of research he didn't know it was a graveyard at all the goose tells him this story and leads him to the gates so when he wakes up, he goes and does the research and finds that this is the Crossbones graveyard. And he writes a play called The Southwark Mysteries. This play um, goes on to be performed. It's performed as part of the celebrations for the millennium in Southwark, at Shakespeare's Globe and at the Cathedral uh, in Southwark as well, which is just a couple of streets away from the Crossbones graveyard. And I'm going to read you a little text from it. Um, this is just part of the, of the, of the play that... John uh, Constable, or sometimes as he's known, John Crow, um, he wrote, I was born a goose of Southwark by the grace of Mary Overy, whose bishop gives me licence to sin within the liberty. In bankside stews and taverns, you can hear me honk right daintily as I unlock the hidden door, unveil the secret history. And then it goes on to tell you about the story of the Winchester geese. And so when this happens, um, this starts up, a complete rethinking of the area and a society is formed called the Friends of Crossbones Graveyard which is created to raise awareness. They work, they decided to, to basically create a garden and a place of reflection and commemoration and they worked with a gardener who was known as the Invisible Gardener where they created this sort of guerrilla garden. In 2009 the International Sex Workers Union came to the site and they said, uh, they actually took it really seriously, which is lovely to hear, and they declared it as the, the first, well, sort of the world's first international heritage site for sex workers. It is now uh, a, gar a community garden. It is maintained by volunteers and every year on Halloween, uh, John Constable leads this uh, sort of, almost like a ritual really it's a drama um of this play that he wrote which proceeds through the streets and ends at the red gates entering crossbones graveyard and the dead are honored with ribbons and candles and offerings and if you go throughout the entire year the the gates will show you they are covered in ribbons and little um trinkets and often people will go and 
remember people that they have lost. In particular, actually, a lot of the number of people in the graveyard were children. So often people go there if they've lost a child or or something like that, will go and, and remember their child here and put little tokens and offerings and it's it's when you go and see it it's a really heartwarming very beautiful space to be it's very um what's the word i'm looking for um uh, tranquil it's very calm but it's also there's a sense of remembering and it's it's wonderful i really recommend popping along um that halloween uh drama has been performed by John and his, his, he's got a group called the Southwark Mysteries Group since 1998 and there's usually a vigil every single month it's normally and I've checked their website for more details um, because these things have gone a bit wonky during Covid um, but usually it's 7pm on the 23rd of every month and they're usually led by John not always but but usually um, you can also go and visit the garden is open there is again it's run by volunteers so they have some timings on their website usually most weekends um sorry most weekdays and some saturdays but it's very much it relies on goodwill from the volunteers so i've often found in the afternoons on a weekday it's it's often open uh, you can just pop in and go and have a little look around it's this lovely so there's a wildflower section as part of it um, the garden has been designed very, very cleverly with raised beds. They brought in loads of fresh soil as well. They didn't want to disturb the graves that were below. Um, so it's a really lovely space. I mean, it's only small. Um, the extent of the graveyard will have gone long, you know, far beyond the space that you see. But as you go in, there is this beautiful curving wooden structure uh, that that goes over your head as you go in. And when you go past it and look back at it, you realise that it's a goose's wing. So these Winchester geese, these women who were outcast by society and by the church, who kind of relied on them for income, are still there and they are now, the goose's wing is protecting you as you go in. There is a little plaque on the outside which has a picture of a Winchester, or a picture of a goose on it, um, and it mentions the Winchester geese. But it is one of those little bits of London's history that I found years ago and was just so touched and moved by it that it's always stayed with me. So... It's somewhere that I recommend going to see. If you're going to Borough Market, just pop by. And even if you only see the gates with the ribbons on um, and you don't get a chance to go inside, it still will give you a sense of this amazing space and the women that are buried in there and ultimately now commemorated as part of London's rich tapestry of heritage. So there we go. That is it for this week, gang. Just me. Um... I hope you enjoyed that little story. It's, it's like I say, it's a, it's a gorgeous spot. It's somewhere that I take people whenever I can. Um, and there'll be more of those things coming up in the next few weeks. So, from me, thank you very much for coming and listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've got some really fun things coming up. I'm talking to a whole variety of people uh, to come on as guests. Um, so it won't be me, just me every week. There will be other things and for those of you who follow me on Instagram, I have started posting again, just. Um, so I'm hoping to get back on that with a, a little bit more stuff this year as well. So keep your eyes peeled uh, for some more exciting things happening there. Uh, but for now, I'm going to love you and leave you. I will see you next week for more fun. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.